What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. Good evening, everyone. I'm Tyler Matheson on day 99 of the coronavirus crisis. Stocks surging today. All major indexes up 7%. But this virus has now killed more than 10,000 Americans. Wow, what a market day. Stock surge. If we are plateauing, we are plateauing at a very high level. Trend trackers show signs a peak is near. We're going to be looking at a decline in GDP um, of at least 30 percent. But it's clear the damage has been done and big risks remain as the crisis continues. This is a CNBC special report. Markets in turmoil. Here's Tyler Matheson. And good evening once again. After a major update for stocks, let's start right now with a look at where the futures stand. Remember, these futures are very volatile at this hour. And you can see that the implied open tomorrow for all three of the major indexes is lower at this hour. But that can change, obviously, in the blink of an eye. Let's talk about the Dow, the S&P and Nasdaq. They were all way up today. All three indexes rising 7%. But each index Don't forget this, how could you, is still down big from those highs of just two and a half, from their highs just two and a half, about a couple months ago. The Nasdaq now 19.5% below its high. The S&P 500, 21.5% off of its high back in February. And the Dow, 23% off the high from mid-February. Well, despite the optimism in the markets today, J.P. Morgan's CEO, Jamie Dimon, warning shareholders in a letter about the economic impact this virus will have. Dimon writes, quote, we don't know exactly what the future will hold, but at a minimum, we assume it will include a bad recession combined with some kind of financial stress similar to the global financial crisis of 2008. Let's bring in CNBC contributor and halftime report trader Surat Seti of Douglas C. Lane and Associates and Christina Hooper, chief global market strategist with Invesco. Welcome to both of you. Surat, let me start with you. What kind of encouragement do you take from today and the past several days now that that March 23rd bottom is a full two weeks behind us? I think uh, what we were looking for when we got today was a little bit of good news. The flattening of the curve, I think that's what investors were looking for. There was so much negative news that we were having over the last couple of weeks. And as we go into the next couple of weeks, we know the news is not going to be good. We know that earnings are going to come out in a pretty disappointing way, and guidance is going to be pretty dismal. 
So I think what we needed was to say, okay, we've got two crises here, a humanitarian crisis and a financial crisis. We know that we can get through the financial crisis, but we needed something, and we got a little bit of it today, but we need more. We need a therapeutic, we need a vaccine, and I think the markets kind of took a breather on the positive, but I think we've got a long way to go. Uh, and Christina, what are your thoughts here? Is this a bottom in the market that we can trust or potentially a false bottom? Well, I think that we're likely to see stocks move up. It's not going to be a smooth movement up. But the reality is that we need to see progress in three areas. We need health policy to be working, we need fiscal policy to be working, and we need monetary policy to be working. And if you think about it, over the last several weeks, we got monetary policy and we got fiscal policy in the United States. And to get some encouraging news about the growth in infection rates being lower than expected is what we needed to hear. That's telling us that that dramatic drop in economic activity that we're seeing is paying off. And that really lays the foundation for a V-shaped recovery. Now, not a smooth V-shaped recovery. It's likely to be slow uh, to start with. It's likely to be rather jagged. Uh, but it does mean that we do have the potential for a nice rebound after a dramatic drop. Christina, thank you very much. Surat, let, let's turn to what you mentioned just a moment ago, and that is that in just a few days, we're going to start to see some earnings numbers coming out of American and global corporations. What do you expect to hear here? And maybe even more tellingly, what do you expect to hear by way of commentary or guidance? I think a couple of things. One is what are companies seeing on the ground? in terms of demand. And then I think the important thing that everybody's going to be focused on is cash flow and balance sheet and how are going to companies survive over the next couple of quarters when they know for the first time that revenue has dropped so drastically. And I think those are the key things to watch for us to get a bottom in this market. All right, Surat, thank you very much. And Christina Hooper, thank you, Surat Sethi and Christina Hooper joining us tonight. Well, a short time ago, President Trump once again warned Americans that uh, about the difficult times that lie ahead. We're going to have a rough week. We're going to have maybe a rough little more than a week. And but there's tremendous light at the end of that tunnel. When we say getting back to normal, we mean something very different from what we're going through right now, because right now we are in a very intense mitigation. When we get back to normal, we will go back gradually to the point where we can function as a society. But you're absolutely right. I mean, if you want to get to pre-coronavirus, you know, that might not ever happen in the sense of the, the fact that the threat is there. But I believe with the therapies that will be coming online and with the fact that I feel confident that over a period of time we will get a good vaccine, that we will never have to get back to where we are right back now. So if that means getting back to normal, then we'll get back to normal. I think we can get more than back to normal from an economic standpoint, actually be better, but more than back to normal. But I, I would agree that uh, we'd love to see a vaccine, but immediately we'd love to see a therapeutic. And I think we're getting very close. Well, we also heard today from New York Governor Andrew Cuomo at his daily briefing, offering some glimmer of hope uh, that his state may too soon turn the corner. Total number of hospitalizations are down. The ICU admissions are down, and the daily intubations are down. Those are all good signs. 
and again would suggest a possible flattening of the curve. Well, earlier today, President Trump did hold a call with the CEOs of four big biotech companies hoping to smooth the way for a treatment for the virus. Meg Terrell is with us tonight. Meg, what can you tell us? Hi, Tyler. Well, we understand it wasn't just the president, but also the vice president, uh, the commissioner of the FDA, Dr. Stephen Hahn, and others from the White House on this call. There were executives from four major biotech companies on this call as well. Um, the CEOs from Amgen, Genentech, which is a part of Roche, uh, Gilead, and the chief scientific officer and co-founder of Regeneron. Now, all of these companies are working on different therapies for COVID-19. Uh, some of them have repurposed drugs uh, that they're testing for them, including including uh, Regeneron and Roche's Genentech testing rheumatoid arthritis drugs in the severest patients to try to tamp down the lung inflammation that you see in those cases. Gilead, of course, has the antiviral drug Remdesivir, for which we're waiting the initial data in just a few weeks. Um, and Amgen has just launched a project um, as well. So all of these companies in the midst of this uh, saying that uh, we're hearing from the call that uh, the president expressed his uh, appreciation for the progress that they're made and promised that the government would be a helpful partner for them. And also hearing that the companies thank the president for directing the administration to cut the red tape to help facilitate getting these drugs uh, through the process and potentially out to market. Well, uh, Dr. Scott Gottlieb knows something about that as the former FDA commissioner, and he joins us tonight. Dr. Gottlieb, thanks for joining us. Uh, you wrote about this in the Wall Street Journal just yesterday, an op-ed piece, where you said, this is the headline on the piece, antivirals and antibody therapies are showing promise. The FDA needs to step up its pace. How can the FDA be going faster? Well, look, thanks for having me, Meg. I think we need to place some bets here. I think that we need to work differently than we've worked in the past and, and look at what could be successful uh, that could have a meaningful therapeutic impact on this disease and be available by August. We need something by August. This virus is going to want to come back in the fall. We want to mitigate the risks of major outbreaks and certainly another epidemic again. That's going to take a therapeutic. The things that could be available by the fall that look like they may have a meaningful impact on the, the disease Certainly the antiviral remdesivir, that's the furthest along. The other antivirals are further behind it. Remdesivir is going to turn over some cards on data really soon. And that could be on the market sooner rather than later if, the, if that data shows that it's having activity against the virus. The other products that could be available soon are the antibodies, the products that are being made by Regeneron and Veer, Lilly, and Amgen. These are antibody drugs that directly target the spike protein on the virus, so a part of the virus that it uses to invade our cells these antibodies target that component of the virus. And basically, they do what our immune systems would do. They basically mop up the virus. So they can be used as both a treatment and early, early disease, as well as a prophylaxis. So if you're exposed to the virus, they can prevent you from getting sick and really be a bridge to a vaccine. What can the FDA be doing that it's not doing now, in your view? I think it has to be, there needs to be a more deliberate sort of industrial policy. We need to actually take the four or five manufacturers that we think have the best odds of success in the near term uh, and work very closely with them, work very directly with them to try to bring these things through, through development. And instead of looking at the whole universe of 300 products or so that are in development at various stages of development, try to focus on the ones that are likely to succeed and the ones that are likely to have a meaningful impact on the disease in the near term. So that means focusing clinical trial resources. So to the extent that there's a master protocol, 
focus that master protocol on the products that are likely to be successful. And I think it's really these five or six products. There might be some others that I'm missing, but certainly these five really focus on them, um, work very directly with the companies, give real-time feedback. The kinds of things that you've seen the agency do, for example, in the setting of oncology trials where you have unmet medical needs, rare tumors, where the agencies work very closely with product developers, giving them feedback almost immediately as data accrues on how to adapt clinical trials and what other steps they can take to try to speed products through the development process. Dr. Gottlieb, who pays for that kind of full-court press uh, on, on therapies that you're describing? Is it the federal government and the taxpayer? Is it the private companies themselves? Where does the money come from? And are we putting enough money into that full-court press? Well, look, the resources are there. We all pay for it. This is federally funded um, enterprises inside the Food and Drug Administration and other components of government. That's what they're there for. And the people at FDA are public health minded. They want to be working on these challenges. I've worked with them. Um, I know the spirit of that agency and what they must be doing right now. I think that the issue, though, is, is one of placing bets and focusing. There's a lot of people pounding on the agency now with a lot of different ideas on how to treat this infection. And a lot of people asking the agency to focus on different ideas, including probably folks on Capitol Hill and folks within the administration. I know what it's like to sit in that seat. And I think what we need to do is to say to the FDA, decide which products you think are most likely to be successful by August and are most likely have a meaningful impact on this, this disease to prevent another epidemic, certainly, but prevent large outbreaks as well. And focus on those products with this sort of industrial policy, just like we did with the Mercury Rocket Project where we work with three or four different manufacturers to come up with a capsule, we need to work with the three or four or five pharmaceutical companies and biotech companies that are most likely to be successful in the near term and try to get those products to the market. Because if we don't have a therapeutic by the fall that we can couple with a very robust surveillance system to detect cases before they become large outbreaks, this is going to be very difficult. We, we are going to have a difficult time preventing spread of this virus come the fall and winter if we don't have one or two successful drugs. Remdesivir might be one of those drugs, but it's probably not going to do it by itself. That drug is maybe as active, maybe as effective if used early in the course of the, the disease. But we're going to need another therapeutic in our medicine cabinet to really put a dent in this risk. Well, Dr. Gottlieb, as we're waiting for those medicines, of course, what we have is social distancing. And we are starting to see the curve potentially flatten. Uh, tell us your thoughts on the latest modeling from IHME. That's that model that the White House Coronavirus Task Force is uh, most uh, frequently relying on, it seems like. Well, that model and other models certainly indicate that um, you're seeing a gradual um, steadying in new cases in the Northeast and the Pacific Northwest. That's been underway for some time. And most of the northern states, so there's a lot of encouraging signs that the mitigation steps we have been taking are having an impact. That model showed some reductions overall. So it even showed reductions in Louisiana and Florida and Texas and Georgia. So it was a very encouraging update. But remember, they're just fitting a line to a curve. They're not really doing a dynamic model to try to take accommodation of policy decisions. And I think where that model may be a little bit off is states like Texas or Georgia, where you see very little testing going on. So Texas and Georgia are testing about 0.20% of their population compared to New York, which is testing probably about 1.4% of their population now. They're leading the nation. So, you know, data in, data out. If the data that goes in isn't very good, then the data that comes out isn't going to be very reliable. And one of the things that concerns me about Texas and Georgia is you see a growing hospitalization rate relative to the cases that they're identifying. So what that suggests is that there's a lot more cases that they're not identifying because the hospitalization rate has been pretty steady relative to the total number of cases. 
And so the states that have a high hospitalization rate relative to the total number of cases that they're turning over, that suggests they're not turning over a lot of cases. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, thank you very much. We appreciate your time as always tonight. Meg Terrell, thank you as well. And breaking tonight, technical glitches bogging down the administration's efforts to get money into the hands of independent business owners. That PPP plan. Let's get to uh, Kayla Tausche for the details. Kayla. Good evening, Tyler. Today, the demand for small business aid completely overwhelmed the platform meant to service those requests. Banking industry sources say that the system that the Small Business Administration uses to confirm that it's received a loan application was down for the majority of today, meaning most loan requests could not be processed, establishing a lengthy queue for borrowers trying to get time-sensitive help. One bank sent in 10,000 loan applications, and only five were confirmed as having been received. One small business owner says her bank told her the loan was submitted, only to tell her hours later that the system had crashed and they didn't know. The Small Business Administration last year processed less than $30 billion in loans. They're trying to churn through more than 10 times of that volume in a matter of days. Senior administration official tells CNBC that the platform did, in fact, process billions of dollars in loans per hour. And tonight, President Trump says the glitches were minor. As of today, tens of thousands of small businesses have applied for more than $40 billion in relief under the Paycheck Protection Program. You've all been reading about it, and it's really, I mean, it's only been going for a couple of days. It's really been performing well. A couple of little glitches, minor glitches that have already been taken care of. Of course, there are many steps in this process, applying for the loan, having the loan application confirmed, having it approved, having the funds dispersed to the bank, and then having them land in the bank account of the small business owners. It's unclear exactly what those statistics that the president referenced pertain to, but he did say that if that $350 billion that's been earmarked runs out, they would go immediately to Congress to replenish it. Tyler? Kayla Tausche, thank you very much. Kayla reporting from the D.C. area. A lot more ahead on this CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Next tonight, a visit to an ER in Michigan as states in the Midwest gear up for the worst. They're tasked with keeping the economy alive, delivering food and medicine. Coming up, where the truckers stand. Before the break, images from around the country on day 99 of the coronavirus crisis. big idea that's inspired countless new ones from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives 30 years ago state street launched the spider s&p 500 etf spy a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does what can you do with spy before investing consider the funds investment objectives risks charges and expenses visit ssga.com for a prospectus containing this and other information read it carefully before investing spy is subject to risks similar to those of stocks all etfs are subject to risk including possible loss of principal alps distributors inc distributor 
Kleinfeld Bridal, made famous by the TV show Say Yes to the Dress, has closed because of the coronavirus. They're now in touch with more than, get this, 8,000 brides as wedding plans are adjusted or postponed. CEO Ronnie Rothstein tonight, in his own words. We're calm because if we don't remain calm, the brides won't be calm. We have about 8,500 brides who are waiting for their dresses. We've called hundreds and hundreds of them. The brides who've had weddings in April, May, and June are rescheduling their weddings for later in the year. We think we would be more comfortable and they would be more comfortable if they started from the middle of July forward. Many of the venues can't accommodate the brides, so that's been one of the issues. This is not an impulsive sale. Working with the brides and their families, it's an emotional attachment. In 9-11, when the trade centers collapsed, we had six brides and or their grooms who perished. And those calls from those families to tell us about this was the most heart-wrenching experience in my lifetime. Money can be remade, but a life can't be regained. So we're praying that that doesn't happen during this crisis. And that was Kleinfeld owner Ronnie Rothstein in his own words tonight. Well, here are tonight's coronavirus headlines. The United Kingdom Prime Minister Boris Johnson has been moved now to the intensive care unit in hospital as his symptoms worsened today. South Carolina has become the latest state to issue a mandatory stay-at-home order and Boeing halting production in that state of South Carolina. Xerox says it is ramping up production of disposable ventilators, hoping to produce 200,000 a month by June. Well, more than 1,000 doctors and nurses are heading to New York State's battered health care system to help out. Meg Terrell tonight with Andy Slavitt, a health care investor who served in the Obama administration, who is now helping with the effort to bring more troops, doctors, into this fight. Meg? Tyler, thanks so much. And Andy Slavitt joins us on the phone tonight. Uh, Andy, you were tweeting about this over the weekend, and I thought your ideas were just super interesting. I mean, you were basically pointing out there's a disconnect between the supply of healthcare workers in some areas where they're being furloughed and the demand for them in areas like New York. Tell us about the conversations you've been having with local leaders and how this problem could be solved. Sure. Uh, so in New York right now, where we have the most significant shortages. Uh, respiratory therapists can make up to $15,000 a week and have complete um, transportation, hotel, and uh, guaranteed protective gear, uh, nurses and physician assistants likewise. Uh, the challenge that, 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 we're, that New York is facing uh, as they get more ventilators and as they get more supplies is it's actually one of labor. And Interestingly, where I live in Minneapolis, we have a lot of nurses and respiratory therapists that are kind of the Maytag repairmen. They are, um, they're furloughed, they're laid off, and they're just sort of waiting for things to come hit in Minneapolis as they've ended elective procedures here. So we've tried to begin a program to allow people who uh, are willing to go to New York and be heroes uh, to be able to do that. Uh, some are doing it voluntarily. Uh, some can do it at, at great pay. And uh, we think this is how the country pulls together in a crisis like this. 
What are the hurdles to making this happen, regulatory speaking or uh, just a leadership uh, focus? You know, how do you how do you make this happen? What are the things standing in the way? I think it's getting the word out now because under normal times, um, you'd have licensure issues. People wouldn't be able to go from place to place. Uh, people wouldn't want to let uh, their employees uh, move around. There, there were just a whole bunch of reasons that in peacetime uh, don't uh, don't apply right now. And so uh, I think the uh, the effort and energy of people who really want to help, uh, particularly the New York public hospital system, uh, is is one that I think is an enormous opportunity. Uh, you know, we understand the the danger that. Um, faces the medical profession uh, right now. And the people in New York, many of them working 18, 20-hour days, seven days a week, you know, they need a break. They need replacements. And if there's replacement troops that can come in, even for a few weeks, they'll handle the peak. Uh, I think, uh, while I know it's challenging, these are experiences people are going to tell their grandkids about, how they, how they uh, kind of went to the rescue, as Benny did in 9-11. Well, I want to ask you also about something we've heard from Dr. Scott Gottlieb about as well. And of course, you guys were part of different administrations. He was the Trump administration's former FDA commissioner, and you served under Obama uh, in CMS. Uh, But this idea that we need to be testing, uh, tracing, and quarantining people like South Korea has done if we're going to effectively lift these uh, social distancing measures. Um, What more do we need to be doing there? So, uh, so first of all, Scott uh, and I are both, I think, come from a similar cloth and that neither one of us, um, we both come from the, the business side, neither one of us is particularly partisan, uh, and we both had, I think, pretty similar tenures, and we, we talk all the time. He put together, I think, uh, along with several other people at AEI, I think a really smart roadmap, if we can hew to it, um, that does depend on our ability to dramatically ramp up testing. I think the what the Trump administration needs to do, however, is they need to appoint a single individual uh, to lead all the testing efforts and become a testing czar, much in the same way Scott was talking about picking some winners and placing some bets on, on biotech and pharma companies. We need to do the same thing with testing. What you don't want is you don't want to have one testing company that has all of the swabs, but none of the reagents to tell you what the results are, and another company that has plenty of reagents, but not enough swabs. And if you don't orient your supply chain towards the people that are going to be delivering the results, you're never going to get enough tests made for this country. And so while Scott has the right idea, uh, right now we have not oriented the supply chain well enough. Remember, we're competing with hundreds of companies, hundreds of countries around the world that got on this sooner than we did. So we are at a disadvantage uh, in chasing that global supply chain. So we need to be smart about it. We need to act about it. We need to catch up. Right. Andy Slavitt, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thanks, Meg. All right, and Meg, thank you as well. Well, metropolitan Detroit's peak in this coronavirus pandemic is expected to hit over the next week, according to the White House. To see what life is like on the front lines in the Motor City and the suburbs there, I want to bring in Dr. Sanford Veter. He's Beaumont Hospital Emergency and Trauma Center Chairman. Dr. Veter, welcome. Good to have you with us. Uh, what kind of uh, caseload are you seeing? How are you? How are you handling it? Well, we're we're handling it pretty well. We're doing certainly the best we can. Everybody's working long hours, and uh, you know we're certainly worried about our our workforce. And it's a marathon. You know, we've been seeing 
high numbers of uh, very ill patients over the last seven days or so, and still anticipating based on predictive models that we uh, won't hit our peak until uh, another few days later this week. Uh, but so far, we're holding up okay. And I really want to just, you know, especially make a mention of, you know, it's important that we share the victories because we do have a lot of patients that are recovering. We have patients that are coming off ventilators, and we're seeing a lot of discharges home of people who are recovering. So I know there's there's a lot of um, focus right now on, on all of the deaths, which, of course, are extremely tragic, but there are a lot of victories, and fortunately more victories than we have uh, losses. And, and people do get well. I hear that what one of the things you have put uh, to use and to great success is kind of drive-up testing at some of your locations where you have sort of one staff that is in charge of taking people's vital signs and, and seeing how sick they are, and those folks are separate from the people who are working inside the, in the hospital uh, proper. Tell us about that yeah. and how and why that seems to work. Yeah, well, so we started doing that throughout the entire Beaumont Health System, and each of our hospital emergency departments, all eight of them, have been doing this curbside screening now for almost two weeks. What that allows us to do is offload uh, mildly uh, symptomatic patients or even the worried well so that they're not entering the emergency department proper. That gives us an opportunity to decompress the interior of the emergency department so that the activities in the emergency department are really focused on those who need it the most. What we're typically doing is that patients who come up um, are initially screened to determine if they are uh, in need of acute emergency intervention. If they're not, then they're rerouted to a curbside screening where vitals are obtained and a physician actually does an examination of the patient in, in their car. Right. So that's something that we've never done before, uh, certainly very different than where we were practicing a month ago. But it allows us to really determine if somebody can safely go home and... Right. Um, and, and quarantine at home versus needing to come into the emergency department. We'll check their vitals, their, their temperature, whether they're oxygen saturating properly or not, and make that determination. Quick question and quick answer, if I might. Do you have the protective equipment, the beds, the ventilators you need now, and do you anticipate that you will have the number you will need as the uh, peak comes maybe later this week or next? Well, right now we're doing okay. We do have plenty of PPE equipment, and our supply chain has been fortunate enough to be able to obtain what we need, but we're, we're certainly concerned about it. Um, we don't know what the future holds. Nobody has a crystal ball, and the predictive models are showing that our peak is still yet to come. So that certainly is a concern, and, and with the pressures on the global supply chain being what they are, you know, that is certainly in the back of our minds. One of the things that Beaumont Health has done uh, uniquely is that they developed the process to be able to sterilize our N95 masks. So that's something that we're doing to try and spare PPE, but we certainly have enough at this mm -hmm. immediate time. And we're also fortunate to be in the Detroit area where there's, you know, the prowess of local manufacturers, the automotive companies who have gotten into the game and have helped out uh, in terms of developing different yeah. types of PPE and, and distributing those. Dr. Veter, thank you very much. Thank you for your very good work. Keep doing what you're doing. God bless you. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. We got a lot more up. ahead on this. Yes, sir, you too, as well. We got a lot more ahead on this CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil.
Next tonight, what to make of today's stock surge. Plus, trucking challenges and the new dangers to the great American supply line. This CNBC special report is coming right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. Up pretty strongly across the board. The Dow Jones Industrial Average up almost 8%. A major rally on Wall Street. The four executives on the call, according to the pool report, are the CEOs of Gilead, Amgen, Regeneron, and Genentech. President Trump speaks with pharma leaders in the hunt for a new weapon in the coronavirus. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, continues. Once again, here's Tyler Matheson. And welcome, everybody. Uh, Midway through this special report, let's take another look now at the futures after this big up day in the market today here in the United States. Right now, the Dow, the S&P and the Nasdaq. uh, Well, the S&P has turned just a little bit positive, but the Dow Jones and the Nasdaq uh, are both negative at this hour. But again, uh, those numbers can change very, very rapidly. Huge update today, as we've been telling you, all three major averages up roughly 7%. Boeing driving the Dow up 20 percent today. That beleaguered stock has still lost more than half of its value so far this year. Other beaten down stocks in retail and travel and leisure also rebounding strongly today. There you see Nordstrom's Kohl's, MGM Resorts and Royal Caribbean. Let's bring in David Balin. He's chief investment officer with City Private Bank. Uh, you know, it was two weeks ago we hit that uh, really uh, deep, deep trough in the market It's two weeks behind us. Are you confident that it really is behind us, David? I'm actually uh, not that confident. The work that we've done at City Private Bank indicates that uh, this is really just a relief rally. Uh, Today, you saw Boeing stock up uh, significantly, and today was the day that Boeing stopped making all jets in the United States. So what we have in my mind is is relief, and we have a lot ahead of us. We probably have another six to eight weeks where America is largely out of work. We're going to hit about a 20 percent unemployment level in the country. And then we have to digest the aftermath of having gone through this. You heard Scott Gottlieb uh, talk earlier about the need to turn back on the economy and what that's going to take, which is testing and the ability for us to really uh, understand what's going on and to have a drug in hand before the end of the summer. So I think the market today is relieved, but there's a long road ahead of us that we have to be very careful about. 
So let's say, David, I have a diversified portfolio and I have held on through uh, this two-month slide in the market. You are now forecasting or suggesting that there is more rough times ahead. What should I be doing with my money now? Should I be reapportioning it? Should I be putting it to work in stocks? Should I be going to cash? What should I do? Well, you should definitely not go to cash. I'm very proud of you for absolutely not taking your portfolio out of the market. It's important that your core portfolio stay fully invested because you cannot market time. Today's up market was one of the rarest days you'll ever see in the market. It happened fewer than 10 times in the last 40 years, this kind of up market. So what you want to do is you want to be adding to quality at this point of time. You want to add into stocks that are good dividend payers or strong balance sheets. You want to avoid some of the stocks that went up today because these are relief rallies where the worst stocks perform the best, those that are poor outlooks. So add quality and then I aired opportunistically to some of the stocks in healthcare or digital uh, you know, fintech that I think really will perform extremely well regardless of what happens uh, you know, with, the, with the virus. David, thank you so much for your insights and your very specific advice tonight, David Balin. We appreciate it. And there's more ahead on this CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. One CEO steps up. We are a 24-year-old manufacturer of pet products. Turning his business into a mask factory. And star chef Wolfgang Puck on managing his business in the age of coronavirus. Before the break, images from around the world on the 99th day of the coronavirus crisis. Truckers are pleading with the Trump administration for more testing in order to curb the spread of coronavirus. So what's at risk? Nothing less than the collapse, the collapse of the nation's supply chain. Frank Holland has the president and CEO of the owner-operator Independent Drivers Association, Todd Spencer. Frank, over right, to thanks you. Thanks a lot, Tyler. Really appreciate it. Todd, thank you for joining us. Thanks for being here tonight. And glad to be part of the show, Frank. Well, first thing, we want to talk about these letters that you've written to the president and to Congress. What's the message that you're trying to send to our nation's leaders about trucking and our national supply chain? One of the things that's come that's become really, really clear about uh, dealing with the pandemic as we are is how much we depend on trucks for timely uh, delivery of virtually everything in our lives, including the food and emergency supplies and things like that. And uh our members are, and truckers overall, are more in demand now than ever. And, you know, and, and while that's both a blessing and a curse in that they're service-oriented people, but having said that, they are, they're going to have a much greater likelihood of being exposed to, to the coronavirus, and they have few, few options when things like that happen. Well, Todd, speaking of that, um, availability of testing has been a national issue. Do you think that truckers need to be among the first people tested and, and when tests become more available? And will uh, I, COVID-19 I, I fears keep people off the road? 
Well, you know, keeping keeping uh, non-commercial vehicles off the road is certainly a blessing for these folks. But again, they'll go into all of the places where they have a greater likelihood of being exposed. And and you know, and of course, the anxiety is what can really, really tear you up. And you know, they 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 live pretty much in their trucks all the time. They struggle to find safe places to park. There aren't nearly enough truck stops, and there certainly aren't are nowhere near enough. Uh, parking places for them right now and rest areas. And, you know, certainly some are going to be, they're going to be exposed and some are going to come down and they're going to have the symptoms. And we'd like some kind of access where a driver can be tested with the results back in a timely fashion. You know, results that come three, four days later simply are of no practical use for people who are spend their lives on the road. You know, Todd, we only have a little bit of time left. You mentioned that the demand right now is a blessing and a curse. How long do you see this demand lasting, and how long can our truckers and our grocery supply chain continue to, to meet these surges in demand? Well, well, the truckers that provide the relief supplies and that take care of the groceries, they're going to always be there. Now, we fully expect to see a drop-off in other areas of trucking simply because of what's going on in the overall economy. Uh, you know, But at the same time, uh, trucking is a brutally competitive business, and while the demand for much of the stuff that our folks bring has never been greater, oftentimes the, the revenue that they're being offered right now to bring it isn't enough to offset their cost or, for that matter, their increased risk uh, financially and, and actually to, the, to being exposed to being ill. All right, Todd, thank you very much. We're going to have to leave it there. Todd Spencer, the president and CEO of the Owner-Operator Independent Drivers Association. Tyler? We're going to send back things, things back over to you. Frank, thanks to you and to Todd. Next, stepping up, how a pet products company has made a big change to help the country. Plus, the world-famous chef Wolfgang Puck will join us and talk about his challenges in this crisis. We'll be right back. Tonight, stepping up, one company's journey from pet products to masks. Our local hospital needs more masks. And so we were contacted by some local people who are uh, rallying manufacturers and people in homes to help contribute to the cause. We are a 24-year-old manufacturer of pet products. Our factory floor has amazing skilled sewers, and it's very unusual to find that in the United States today. And so the shift to masks was a matter of, of identifying a pattern, getting that approved, working with our local contacts to do that, getting textile from a local manufacturer who had access, training some people on how to make that approved specification. The advantage for us starting off serving our local hospitals that they're just down the road and they're coming by the factory and picking up masks, uh, making sure they can put them into use right away. Having something good like making medically approved masks gives everybody a sense of hope and optimism and the fact that they're making a difference. And we know that purpose helps us get through these challenging times. And that, folks, is West Paw Design stepping up tonight. Well, the restaurant industry has taken a beating, perhaps like nobody else, amid efforts to curb the spread of COVID-19. And with us tonight is the world-famous chef and entrepreneur Wolfgang Puck. Wolfgang, Wolfgang, welcome. Great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure and an honor to be on your show because we love your business show. So, 
Well, well, thank you very much. And so many people love your restaurants uh, and your products. What uh, amidst all of the closures that you've had, what's open yeah. and what are you doing at those open locations? You know, it is really difficult in our industry because we gather people together in restaurants. People celebrate, people have business meetings and so forth. So we only have three of our 25 restaurants open. One is Spago Beverly Hills, where we do takeout. We do takeout from Chinon, Maine, and takeout from one of our restaurants in Las Vegas, the locally in the suburbs, because uh, all the other restaurants are closed. Like we have six restaurants on a strip in Las Vegas, all the casinos are closed. Our restaurants in Singapore are closed. Our restaurant in Istanbul, in London, they're all closed down right now. And you know, the restaurant industry is really the biggest employer in the United States. We, as a group employed, as a group, as all the restaurants employ 15 and a half million people. Millions are out of a job. Millions are followed already. You know, we have some of our restaurants, thank God, people are not followed yet. But if the federal government or the insurance companies don't help us, and the insurance company with the business interruption insurance don't honor the contract, we're going to be in even bigger trouble, and I don't see any end to it. So do, so do I understand you correctly? So far, because of business interruption insurance and the, and the impending uh, availability of small business loans and payroll help, you have not had to, to furlough or lay off anybody throughout your dozens of restaurants? Yeah, through the restaurants which we own, we have about 1,500 employees in all of our restaurants we own. We have restaurants in partnership with different hotels, like the Four Seasons, for example, where they followed a lot of people already because uh, we don't uh, employ the people, we just manage their property. And some of the companies also do the right thing. Like uh, Sheldon Adelson at the Sands Corporation, he is paying people. The uh, Dorchester right. Group, they are paying people. Maybe not 100%, but maybe 80%. So there is some help. But a lot of restaurants, a lot of companies, a lot of small restaurants, they don't gonna stay in business for long unless business interruption yes. insurance comes up and do the Let right thing. Let me ask you, you know, if I might... Let me ask you, if I might, Wolfgang, in the limited time we have left, what do you think your business, the restaurant business, looks like on the other side of this? You know, I think I wake up at four in the morning and think, what are I going to do when this is partially over? It's going to take a long time to really be over. And I talked with the president uh, a week ago about helping us by having businesses being able to deduct business lunches, business dinners, 100% the way it used to be, like when Jimmy Carter really started it out to uh, lower the thing you can deduct, you know, they had these three martini lunches. But I think we need the stimulus in our business, which is really strong. And by business, by business being able to deduct business lunches and dinners, I think that will stimulate our economy but it will still be difficult to hire back 100% of the people because if we only have 50% of the business, it's going to be very, very, a very long way back. 
All right, Wolfgang, thank you very much, and uh, good on you for keeping your workers uh, together as best you can. Well, that does it for this uh, special uh, CNBC broadcast of called Markets in Turmoil. For all of us here at CNBC, thanks for joining us. Shark Tank will be right up. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.